Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. Yeah. Here we are. Before we get started with our stuff tonight, we wanted to talk about something. Coincidentally, last month was Asian American and Pacific uh, Islander Islander Heritage. Heritage Month. But we had already been talking about, but we just haven't had the time to really discuss it on our past few episodes, about we were both watching shows from the 90s yes and how just casually racist they yeah. are about asians and do you want to start i was re-watching all of the seinfelds on netflix i started to notice how especially asians the yeah racist and anybody actually on the show that isn't white is treated poorly like a caricature like a caricature so i kept track of just the asian ones there's let's see one two three four five six episodes the first one i noticed it and was in season two episode 11 which was the chinese restaurant one which is one of their ones that a lot of people are familiar with and at the time it was actually critically acclaimed right and, of, and it was one of our favorites and just so people know they're all they're waiting to get a seat in a chinese restaurant and yeah. that's the whole episode right and it is a good episode except for that the maitre d of the restaurant who was a an asian actor that you've seen in many things he's kind of a caricature of an asian maitre d in a restaurant mm-hmm. i guess he has a very thick accent he seems oblivious to things it just rubbed me the wrong way and then after that the next season there's one called the cafe and the, the guy is an asian he's pakistani this guy named babu jerry convinces him to change his restaurant which is just kind of a general you know has hamburgers and stuff to a pakistani restaurant which fails and he's played kind of as a caricature his accents played up i feel like people do like to laugh at or american people at indian and pakistani accents because they have that nice that lilt Mm -hmm. in the way they talk and again it just bugged me and then in season four the virgin it's about this woman that's a virgin which is kind of dumb anyway because just because you're a virgin doesn't mean you know absolutely nothing about sex but that's not what i was upset about elaine accidentally makes ping who's a chinese delivery guy his bicycle he crashes into a car and he's injured and he's played as a caricature just a few episodes later both ping and babu are in the same episode where jerry felt bad about supposedly felt bad about making babu's uh, business fail and he was mm-hmm. going to lose his visa. And so Jerry was helping him, supposedly. But he didn't file the papers in time. And Babu was being deported. And Jerry doesn't really give a shit. Mm-hmm. Which, you know. And then Ping is also in that one because his George is um, dating this very attractive Chinese American woman who I don't know why she would date George, but that's beside the point. She she's a lawyer and she happens to be Ping's cousin and she's suing Elaine. And that again, it's not the storyline itself. It's not the storyline; it's the way, the way people, they're depicted and okay. the way people on the show talk about them. Yes, and 
there's one in season six where there's a woman that lives near Jerry and somehow their phone lines get crossed and her last name is Chang and he thinks she's Asian and he wants to date her. And then he finds out she's not Asian, she's white and he's disappointed. Right. He's fetishizing Asian women. I, I was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then the last one would be, was the worst, I thought, season eight, episode seven called The Checks. Jerry is popular in Japan, or there's a little clip of him on some show in Japan. I can't remember exactly what it is, but he gets these checks for like eight cents or something. I can't remember. But there are these Japanese tourists who recognize him, these three men, and Kramer befriends them and all this stuff. And they are depicted as goofy, gullible. It's just really stereotypical and in a bad way right it's just it's just that one was the worst and, and that's the one where they end up sleeping in the fardman chest yes right? yes they sleep in a big a giant dresser and then the ones that aren't asian there are many of those the cigar store indian one season five episode 10 where jerry gives elaine the cigar store indian and then he brings it over to her house elaine's friend winona's there who jerry has the hots for and she's offended and the little jerry episode which is season eight episode 11 where the latin bodega owner is into cockfighting and they have a rooster that cockfights and also cockfighting is horrible yes it is i don't think it was funny and then like when elaine dates the guy she thinks is black i didn't think that one but some people do and the other one um season nine episode 20 the puerto rican day parade there's a lot of there's a lot of casual racism yes and then that mean the guy that's a recurring character who's that really scary mean puerto rican gay guy yeah he's in that and his accent it's just it seems like anyone who's not a white or a Caucasian American, like Poppy too, the father of Jerry's, I don't know if he's Greek or Italian. I thought he was supposed to be Italian. And then Jackie Childs, the lawyer who's based kind of on Johnny Cochran. Yeah. He's a caricature. And while you were watching that, like a few months ago, I watched the Larry Sanders show, which was filmed in the early to mid nineties with Gary Shandling as the star and the premise of that show for people i watched it on hbo the premise for people who don't know is larry sanders was a talk show host so it was kind of a show within a show sometimes you know it would have him on his show it had the behind the scenes stuff it's a comedy like i didn't write notes like you i texted you at the time but i wasn't going to go through all our thousands of texts to find it i know but there was one season in particular where there was just a string of episodes where there was just virulent Asian racism, starting with Larry was doing his monologue, and it was when Connie Chung, who had been, um, she's an Asian American and had been the anchor of CBS News, had been fired because a lot of their stuff was kind of topical. And he made a joke that was, though, the punchline was of the worst of the Vietnamese and Korean War Asian prostitute Mm. line. And there was a line that, and it was supposed to be funny, and I was shocked by that. And at first I'm like, okay, there's going to be on the show, there's going to be repercussions, but no, it was just part of the quote unquote humor of the show. And then that season in particular, there was a string of just anti-Asian stuff. And then finally there was an episode where it's a long story, but a group of Asian people complained to the show 
about Gary's Asian jokes. And I'm like, okay, somebody in real life must have complained. And now this is their kind of apology. But actually, they ended up making a big joke about it. Mm -hmm. And there was more, though not as much, anti-Asian humor. Again, this show, too, there was there's one Black major character, Larry's personal assistant, Beverly, who's a Black woman. Nobody else on the show is Black. And none of Larry's guests on his show were ever Black. And we're going through five seasons here. And there was one episode towards the end of the series when Beverly wanted her cousin, who was Black, to be hired as the prop master. And they didn't want to hire him, even though he had experience. And she called them out on their racism and he got hired. But then the show went on and there was one where Dave Chappelle was on and stuff. This was like maybe the last season. But that was about it. And there were also very few women. It did not pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. Uh, the writers of the, the Gary, of the Larry Sanders show, the big show, the, the show we're watching, were all white men. You know, you see who the writers mm, yeah. are. Every once in a while, there'd be a female one. The writers on the show within the show were white men. One was played by Jeremy Piven, who got fired by Larry. And the other one was this guy, Phil, who's really annoying. But you could see how it's like, if nothing else, this shows how this sexism, systemic sexism and racism works. It's a bunch of white guys, both in this show, within a show and writing the actual show, who have no clue because they're at the top of the pile, how offensive they're being to everyone else and how no one else is getting a chance to be in the club and people are being treated disrespectfully and they're totally unaware of it. I watched both of those shows and enjoyed them quite a bit when they were on in the 90s. If I was offended by the racism, the casual sexism bothered me on some level, but a lot of it was just such normal stuff that you would hear it was just normal because because yeah. those shows are also both just inundated with casual sexism. But I don't remember the racism, the anti-Asian yeah. racism. I was shocked by that Connie Chung yeah. joke. I mean, that was the kind of thing that would get a show canceled nowadays if oh, it ever yeah. made it on the air. Yeah, I guess it shows in one way how far we've come, but also it shows what people of ethnic groups and stuff are talking about when they talk about all the microaggressions and how yeah. they've been treated over the years. And people who would think like us, who would think that we're understand racism and all this stuff, but we were watching those shows yeah. back. I was in my thirties watching those yeah. shows and, and not, not being and not, not noticing it. And, you know, so like, um, about seven, it was like 2013, 2014. And uh, for a few years, Jerry had that web uh, show comedians in cars getting coffee, which I used to watch, but yeah, he was um, called out because most of his guests were white male. Someone asked him about it in 2014. And he said, he said, it really pisses me off. People think comedy is the census or something. It's got to represent the actual pie chart of America. Who cares? On one hand, yeah, it's his show. He can do what he wants. But on the other hand, that is the obtuseness of the male white ruling class totally not getting I know. And Gawker, he said... I have no interest in gender or race or anything like that. He kind of implies that anyone who's not a white male isn't really as, you know, it's funny. As funny. 
when his series ended in 1998, Los Angeles Times had a story about how it was a non-event for many in the Black community. You know, how it was a big, I remember his last show was a big deal. Of course, it's not going to have a Black audience who, you know. Right. This is a, a quote. Observers said that the lack of Seinfeld fever among Blacks is mainly attributed to the almost total absence of minority characters in the New York based sitcom, reported Los Angeles Times writer Greg Braxton. Some supporting characters, including an attorney modeled after defense lawyer Johnny Cochran Jr., have been featured in the last few seasons, but many said the show is still seen as a program that excludes minorities. It's like, no kidding, it excludes minorities. Yeah. And I noticed as it went on that they would have bit players. Yes, who were they black. did have more bit players. Yes. But they brought in a lot of characters. It's not like that old excuse, oh, we have this core of characters. We can't, like you know, friends they, used to say. Right. They brought in new characters, but they were always white characters. Granted, Mickey was a little person, but like Newman, who was just talked about, I'm not saying Newman needed to be black, but you can bring in characters of color. And they actually joked about not having black characters, which to me is even more of an offense. You know, they would joke on the show about not having black friends and stuff. It's even more of an offense because they're very aware of it and yet not doing anything about it because they don't give a shit. In a way, it reminds me of I was reading back when I was watching Midsummer Murders before I got annoyed for a variety of reasons that I don't want to get into. But part of it is every time he got a new sergeant, it was a white male. But I read that the producer, whose name I can't remember, but he's a famous producer of British TV shows, <laughs> was criticized for the lack of diversity on the show back maybe about 10 years ago or so. And he goes, well, it's supposed to reflect the England of the countryside, you know, and it's not a show that takes place in the 1800s or something. It's a current show. Don't tell me there are no black people in England. And also you do not have to, it's not a documentary. Yeah. You 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 can can bring in characters of color. I mean, look at Bridgerton. I mentioned this to some friends, some college friends of mine who are very liberal people who like, British mysteries, just like I do. And they gave me pushback on it, both about the fact that all his sergeants were white males. And one of them is like, well, it reflects. I'm like, no, there were female police sergeants in the 1990s and 2000s in Britain. You know, it's like people don't want to like I enjoyed Seinfeld. I think it's funny. And the same with Larry Sanders, but you can still criticize it and want to do better. I'm not saying to people, you're not allowed to like the stuff you like. Like I had also mentioned to them how Shetland, the show Shetland didn't pass the Bechdel test and got a lot of pushback on that. But it's true. It doesn't. And yeah. they're like saying, well, he's a policeman talking to... Like, doesn't it doesn't matter. It's, impure. It's, it, it's a task. You can still have it either women. passes it or it doesn't. Right. Yeah. You can have women talking about something that isn't men, just the way mm-hmm. you can have men talking about something that isn't women. My thought is if people want to push back, instead of understand it, that doesn't give us a lot of hope. Things have obviously changed if we're so taken we aback it. Yeah. by these yeah. shows that we really enjoyed. But I, I think people have to stop especially white people have to stop pushing back. I know that's and what start, me. And start trying to understand and trying to help change things. I think it's good that we notice, we notice it now. Yes. From, we didn't back then, but that's what bugs me the most about sexism, racism. If somebody says something to me about being a white middle-aged woman, not understanding something, 
I try to look at myself and say, why are they saying that to me? Mm-hmm. Instead of, I mean, I know Instead the initial, of denying it, yeah, right. the initial thing is the initial feeling is to say, that's not true. Right. And, and try to defend yourself. But instead you need to, you I know, tell people I'm trying to understand. I'm trying yeah. to move and forward. When people make generalizations about, about white women, how we all voted for Trump. Yeah. I know that doesn't apply to me. And I know that a lot of white women did. And yes. so I can't right. argue. There's no point right. in me arguing Me that. saying that I didn't doesn't. It's like uh, not all men. Right. Not doesn't, all men. Right. You know? How yeah. we react to that. But I'm glad we discussed this. I hope it was interesting to our listeners and that maybe it'll give them something to think about. And maybe they've already thought about it. Right. And are saying, wow, it took you gals long enough yeah. to get on the wagon. But before we get to your very interesting story, Ooh, I, have yes. two, I have two updates. Should I do those now? Yeah, do your updates. Okay. Get, get them over with. My first one is an update to episode 122.2. If you remember when Becky was um, not here and we dropped that one. Oh, yeah. In the still unsolved homicides of Concord, New Hampshire residents Stephen and Deshwende Reed, there's been a couple slight developments. The New Hampshire Attorney General John Formella and Concord Police Chief Bradley Osgood, who I always picture as looking like Chief Wiggin on <laughs> Simpsons, announced on May 17th, and sorry, I'm just bringing it up now, they're looking for a guy who fits a composite sketch that they released. Annoyingly, I first read about this in the Boston Globe, which had a story but no sketch, and I think anytime media reports on a composite sketch, they should display it. That's the whole point of the investigators releasing a composite sketch. No shit. So in that spirit, you can see it on our Instagram, crime and stuff. So get on Instagram and follow us. We're finally using that social media platform. Anyway, investigators say he's a white male in his late 20s, early 30s, approximately 5 foot 10, medium build with short brown hair and clean shaven. Hmm. He was seen in the vicinity of the shooting incident on Monday, April 18th, wearing a dark blue jacket, possibly with a hood, khaki colored pants and carrying a black backpack. And they just want to talk to him. Uh, anyone, I know any anyone with information about the identity or whereabouts of the guy is asked to contact the Concord Police Department or the Concord Regional Crime Line. And I don't know. I looked at that composite. He looks kind of angry. So I'd stay away from him. They didn't say why, what led them to release the composite. They're keeping a lot of stuff close to the vest on this one. Jeffrey W.R. Ward, a criminal bureau chief with the New Hampshire Attorney General's office and Concord Police Chief Osgood, held a news conference on June 2nd. The reward offered by the Concord Regional Crime Line is now $33,500. And that's for information leading to the arrest and indictment. (sighs) Of whoever is responsible. But not conviction, so. 20000 of it was donated by an anonymous donor who has pledged Wait. the money only if someone comes forward yeah. in the next 60 days, which is now down to, um, I don't know, this was around the time they released the composite, so 40-something days, I don't know. $5,000 is from another anonymous donor, and in addition, the Concord Police Patrolmen's Association and Supervisors Association, as well as the retired New Hampshire State Police Troopers Association, (laughs) have all contributed money. I say they should be out there finding the guy. (laughs) Investigators said they got more than 170 tips in the first month after the shootings and dozens more since they released the composite. 
Certainly, Ward said, there have been tips that have been helpful. That's obviously a significant number. (laughs) It's not unusual for tips to not lead anywhere. The couple's family said they believe the killings were likely racially motivated. Deshwendi was black. Stephen Reed was white. But Ward wouldn't comment on a motive at a news conference a month ago or at the one on June 2nd. Investigators are pursuing all possible angles, he said. When asked about safety in the area of the trail or the East Concord neighborhood, he said investigators did not believe the public was in danger. If you're white, <laughs> no, I know didn't say that part, but continue to encourage thinking. vigilance, quote, lock your doors and report anything unusual to the police. He wouldn't speculate on whether the crime was random or the reeds were targeted, the make of the gun used in the killings, where along the trail the bodies were found, why the sketch was only a profile and not full front, hmm. and whether the person of interest was in the area or was armed and dangerous, and whether the person of interest or a suspect was released from the state hospital or state prison. And that's, I got from a news report, and I'm interested in the assumptions that those things make, but quote, we feel like we are making progress, generally speaking, Ward said, (laughs) that's something to protect the integrity of the investigation, What that means is, at this stage, it's important that there is information that is only known to investigators and the killer. That allows us to consider the credibility and evaluate the credibility of information that comes in and prevent any witness tampering that may occur. When asked about tips about gunshots heard in the area at the time of the killings, and I don't know if that means the way this article was written, people heard gunshots and called police about it, or if they're asking if anyone heard gunshots. Ward said, people certainly did hear things that are of value in the investigation, but I don't want to add additional details with respect to that. Osgood, the police chief, was asked by one of those suck-up type reporters who kowtows to cops how the investigators (laughs) were handling the traumatic and gruesome case, as well as all the extra hours they were putting in trying to find leads. He said it was the department's highest priority, and he was proud of the work detectives and officers were putting into the case and keeping the community safe, too. Quote, it's an exhausting investigation, but we have a really good staff, he said. And I don't do that to demean the police, but I I hate it when reporters say, oh, how hard is this on you to the police? You know, Mm. it doesn't advance the uh, story. To recap, the Reeds went for a walk at the Broken Ground Trails in Concord near their apartment at the Alton Woods apartment complex at approximately 2.22 p.m. on the afternoon of Monday, April 18th. Their bodies were found late afternoon, Thursday, April 21st, in the woods near Marsh Loop Trail. Autopsies by Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Mitchell Weinberg determined that the cause of death for both was multiple gunshot wounds Mm. and the manner of death was homicide. Also, when we first did the episode, their obituaries hadn't been published, and we didn't know a lot about them, just some stuff that had been in the paper. So here's some more info on the reads from the joint obituary that there was one obituary for both of them that ran in the Concord Monitor. Steve was born in 1955 in Concord, New Hampshire, the second of five children of William and Peggy Ann Levitt Reed. Deshwendy, known as Wendy, was the eldest daughter of nine children born in Benin, in 1956 to Byla and Poco Pasco. The two met in Washington, D.C., where Wendy, who played on Togo's women's basketball team, was going to school on a scholarship, going to college. Although Wendy was raised in Togo, both her parents and the extended family were from Burkina Faso. She was the daughter of a prominent pastor in the Assemblies of God Church, 
and she was um, raised with that church and maintained a deep root of faith. And I'll quote mostly from the obit because it's a nice story. A mutual friend introduced them because Steve spoke Hausa, a West African language, and Parisian French well enough to meet Deshwende's conversational standards. Upon meeting Steve, Wendy went from disbelief to impressed. It took several invitations to play tennis from the timid Steve Reed, as well mm. as a hint from Wendy's college roommate for her to understand the romantic intentions behind those invitations. Mm. Wendy was as outgoing and extroverted as Steve was introverted and reserved. In short, they made a dynamic pair who complemented one another and brought out the best in each other. From both sides of the Atlantic, the Pasco and Reed families recognized Wendy and Steve's genuine love for each other and blessed their 1984 marriage in Senegal. However, Steve and Wendy ensured their children were born in Steve's native Concord. They had two children, Lindsay and Brian. Steve and Wendy provided the two children with abundant multicultural childhood experiences and instilled in them a sense of global community, love of humanity, and human diversity in all its forms, hard work, courage, and integrity. Steve worked as associate director of the Peace Corps in Senegal and led numerous projects addressing reforestation, water supply, community development, and intercultural language training. He eventually left the Peace Corps to attend Syracuse University to pursue a master's degree in public administration, and in 1989, he was recruited by the U.S. Agency for International Development, known as USAID, to work with a local non-governmental organization headquartered in Burkina Faso, dedicated to addressing the interrelated issues of climate change and food security in West Africa. Wendy worked first as a personal assistant and later as community liaison officer for the American embassy in Burkina Faso. The obit said Steve excelled in the field of international development and became a career chief of party directing USAID-funded projects in Bangladesh, Burkina Faso, Liberia, Niger, Senegal, and Haiti. Always respectful of local people and cultures, Steve was an exceptional leader of multicultural teams. Soft-spoken and down-to-earth, he easily gained the respect, love, admiration, and trust of those he served as a living embodiment of humility, hard work, and compassion. Throughout his long career, Steve was able to count on the love and support of his wife, who was instrumental to his success, often accompanying him on field visit, organizing logistics, translating and copy editing reports in French and English. Mm. In 2003, Wendy completed the degree she had been pursuing before she married Steve and graduated magna cum laude with a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from Suffolk University's Dakar, Senegal campus. She went on to serve as an admissions counselor for the university, recruiting and supporting the enrollment of students from French-speaking West African countries. The family moved to Burlington, Vermont, where Steve was a senior associate for democracy and governance at ARD, Inc., and Wendy, a program coordinator at Vermont Refugee Resettlement. In 2009, they went to Haiti, where Steve worked on a USAID-funded local governance project to increase transparency and improve collaboration among municipalities, Steve and Wendy were in Port-au-Prince during the 2010 earthquake that devastated Haiti. Instead of evacuating the country, they chose to stay. Hmm. Steve helped shore up the municipalities most impacted by the earthquake. Wendy supported efforts to protect internally displaced persons. And I believe our sister Nikki went there as part of medical team. Yes, she did. After retiring in 2019 from Niger, Steve and Wendy returned to Concord with the intention of spending the rest of their lives with family and old friends whom they love so much. Spurred on by the pandemic's emphasis on outdoor activities, Steve and Wendy enjoyed hiking together on Concord's 
fast trail system. Although not a publicly affectionate man, Steve left a trove of romantic letters written to his wife. Forming a remarkable team throughout their married and professional lives, Steve and Wendy lived and died next to each other, Mm. united for better or worse, when their lives were cruelly taken on April 18th. This exceptional couple will be remembered for an impressive list of humanitarian accomplishments. Their lifelong contributions to making the world a better place have left an indelible mark on the lives of many people around the world, their children, and all who knew them. It can be said that the two were loved and respected by all of those with eyes to see and ears to hear. They will be greatly missed. A memorial service celebrating Stephen Wendy's lives will be held June 24th in Derry, New Hampshire. And it's sad, another asshole with a gun. It's the sad. people who lived really, really productive and special lives. And, and some yeah. asshole with a gun. But you may also remember that a few days after Stephen Wendy were shot to death, Holly Banks and Keith LaBelle were also shot to death in mm-hmm. Gorham, New Hampshire, yes. in Holly's house. It seems not much has happened on that case. Barbara Tetro of the Berlin Sun reported on June 2nd that the investigation was continuing. Quote, what I can tell you at this point is that the case is still very actively being investigated, Uh. said Michael Garrity, New Hampshire Department of Justice, Director of Communications, in an email to Barbara. The bodies of Banks, 28, and LaBelle, 42, were discovered early on the morning of April 27th in Banks' residence, as I said, at 625 North Main Street in Gorham, New Hampshire. And that's um, 100 plus miles north of Concord. The things aren't related. Banks was shot once in LaBelle several times. It was not a murder-suicide. And I'll repeat, as I said in that episode, that I have a theory about what happened. And if police ever arrest anyone, I'll reveal it. Ooh. That's my first update. So I have a second update, but why don't you do yours? Uh, This isn't a full update. It's on the most updated episode. Oh, yeah. Was that episode 29? 29. Bad Uh, chemistry. Annie Dukin. I'm going to update it when there's more information, but there's a class action suit being filed against the state of Massachusetts or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. About 30,000 people are in the class. It could cost Massachusetts $14 million or more. What they're doing is paying back people who paid fines and court costs. The article says each wrongfully convicted defendant, I guess they are wrongfully convicted because the if, if, the process was wrong. Right. It's not like they're all innocent, which I'm not saying that. And if you're wondering what, you should listen to the episode if you haven't. Annie falsified results from drug tests and caused a lot of people to get convicted. So each defendant will receive hundreds of dollars, if not more. And what they're going to be refunding if this goes through, there'll be 10 types of fees and fines, including probation, supervision fees, victim witness fees, court costs, DNA test fees, drug analysis fees, and driver's license reinstatement fees. And there's other ones. One quote that I thought was interesting, and this is Luke Ryan, who's one of the attorneys. Oh yeah, Um, he's in that documentary. Yes, he's representing the class that's suing the state. He says, we are hopeful that in addition to returning money to class members, the case will cause elected officials to see the wisdom of recent proposals to end the practice of treating the most financially insecure among us as a source of revenue. And by that, he means all the things you have to pay for if you're arrested, whether or not you're found guilty, you got to pay court costs. Uh, some of that stuff you don't get back. It's not fair. And it's, it is the poorest among. I think it's interesting. And I will 
I'll keep my eye on it so I can give a better update. Speaking of class action suits, I got notice a couple months ago that there was one against a company that had held my mortgage for a while and that if I didn't respond, I would be getting a check. A million dollars. Because you can respond and say you don't want it if you want to sue yourself. And it had to do with them overcharging for people who paid by telephone and stuff, which I rarely did. And I did get a check last week. It was for $2.19. Wow. And that marks the third time I've gotten a check in a class action suit. And I don't believe any of them has been more than $8. I know. Okay. Well, I have another update. And I can't remember what episode, but way back at the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic, right before it, I mentioned in an episode, I think I was talking about Maine's first murders of the year, homicides of the year or something. I mentioned that Thomas Bonfante, 65, had been charged with shooting four people killing three of them in Washington County. Bonfante of Northfield was found guilty last week of three counts of murder, one count of aggravated attempted murder, and one count of aggravated assault. The jury in Belfast, Maine, and Waldo County, where the trial had been moved because of pre-trial publicity, which I couldn't find hide nor hair of, Uh deliberated for just a few hours Wednesday this past week, June 1st, before returning the verdict. Bonfante killed 57-year-old Sean Curry, 49-year-old Jennifer Bryant Flynn, and 33-year-old Sam Powers, who were found dead in homes in Machias and Jonesboro. Regina Long, who lived with Curry, was also shot but survived. I wasn't planning on doing much on this since I didn't do much in the first place. They had just been shot and there wasn't much information available. Then COVID hit and I guess that just stopped people from covering news or something. I don't know. But I do have to talk about it a little more than I had planned because it has some stuff. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, my computer decided today that the Bangor Daily News, the only outlet that actually covered the trial, is malware. So I have to rely mm-hmm. on AP, which boiled down the BDN stories. And there was a very badly written story on the website Law and Crime, which is a Dan Abrams production. So that doesn't surprise <laughs> me, which used BDN information. Anyway, the odd thing about the trial is that right after the state made its opening statement, Bonfanti himself did his own opening statement, <laughs> basically testifying, despite the fact he was represented by Jeff Toothaker, who's been in a couple of our episodes. <laughs> Quote, <laughs> Basically, all the evidence will show we had a couple of accidents, self-defense, and I think all the evidence will show that, Bonfanti told the court. (laughs) He said witnesses would testify that after the shootings, he laid $789 on the bar at the Machias American Legion post and said, this is my cremation money. I just shot seven people. I snapped. They finally made me snap. (laughs) Later, Toothaker, his attorney, told a reporter, I've done a lot of trials. And I've never had a client do his own opening, so that was unique. I'm curious (laughs) as to how it impacted the jury. (laughs) Three witnesses later testified that Bonfanti did indeed walk into the Machias American Legion post on that February day in 2020 and say something like, this is my cremation money. I just killed several people. I just snapped. Later, Bonfanti testified that he accidentally shot Powers and Bryant Flynn after going to their home to talk about money missing from the American Legion post. Mm. After that happened, he said, he went to Long and Curry's home to talk to them, where he said his gun fell out of his coat while they were having coffee. He said Mm. the two went after the gun and Curry, quote, threatened to kill me. So he got the gun back from Curry and shot both of them. 
He also said all of his victims were, quote, drug addicts who had serious Mm. records. Well, he didn't have such criminal history. He also said he was upset because of a rumor money had been stolen from the Legion, which is what he went to talk to them about. Bonfanti said he struggled with Long before she was shot several times. She's the one who survived, and her story of what happened differed quite a bit from his. She said she was serving him coffee in her home when he held a gun to her neck and squeezed the trigger. She played dead on the floor after she was shot. Uh. She said she had no idea what Bonfanti's motive might have been. Bonfanti also said he was under a lot of pressure and suicidal and claims he took a cap full of pills at the American Legion post after the shootings with the intent to kill himself. Obviously, that didn't work. (sighs) His attorney, Toothaker, acknowledged that Bonfanti's explanation was, quote, a tough sell, (laughs) unquote. During closing arguments... The prosecutor said the story was, quote, pure and utter nonsense, unquote. Assistant Attorney General Robert Bud Ellis told the Bangor Daily News after the trial, we felt the evidence was very strong and compelling from the beginning of the case, and obviously the jury agreed. The prosecution argued the alleged embezzlement issue at the American Legion had nothing to do with the shooting spree. I had kind of wondered if he'd stolen the money himself Mm. and was shooting the people who knew about it, but it's not clear even if anything was missing, if any money was missing. I think since COVID happened right after and those shootings, which were a big deal in a low population area, maybe that just wasn't, I don't know, that investigated or, you know, they don't have to prove motive. Ellis after the verdict, told a reporter that the motive remains a mystery. Quote, there are all kinds of theories that weren't fully played out in court. It could be multi-layered. We don't really know. The three murder convictions carry sentences of 25 years to life in prison. The two additional convictions carry sentences of up to 30 years in prison and fines. And his sentencing has not yet been set. Mm. It seems like it might be an interesting story, but it was literally not covered when i saw him on the news i'm like i don't really remember that i remember because i had mentioned it in the thing but because of covid you know after he was arrested and stuff and it seems like the trial had just started and i'm like oh i have to update that and then when i went to update it today i looked and the trial was over i think there's a lot more to it oh yeah that maybe we'll never know because nobody ever reported on it or wrote about it and i'd like to know more about him giving his own opening statement and what i think he insisted you're allowed to do it yeah yeah yeah. and your lawyer can try to talk you out of it but maybe maybe the lawyer was like the guy obviously shot the people (laughs) you know what the fuck (laughs) and i know i sound like a broken record but it's something on everybody's mind these days in the good old usa another asshole with a gun and three people are dead yeah because some asshole with a gun got pissed off about something three people are dead there are assholes all over the world right but But yet they don't have the access to the guns and maine has a very lax right maine has people come to maine to buy guns and we don't have the mass shootings other places do but we do have but the majority of homicides maine every year right before uvalde some asshole who was having a fight with his asshole brother and his Uh brother was holding his two-year-old yep shot his brother because he was pissed at him and ended up shooting the two-year-old instead of his brother and killing her. If the guy didn't have a gun, they would have gone out in the front yard and kicked the shit out of each other and the kid would be alive. 
Exactly. On another note, you have uh, an uplifting story. Uh, All right. Are you ready? I am ready. My sources were almost exclusively the Elmira New York Star Gazette and the Elmira Advertiser. And I'll cite other sources if I have them as I go. And I use newspapers.com and newspaperarchive.com. And our dad worked at those papers. Yes, he did. It was Saturday night, July 11th, 1959. 39-year-old Lillian Shusko of Elmira, New York, was out on her front porch enjoying the summer evening. Her neighbors and landlords from the other side of the duplex, Mrs. Tyson and John Lilly, were in their driveway talking to a neighbor. Bennett Tyson, the husband of Mrs., who has no first name, according to the newspaper, was in his living room. It's not well explained, but it seems like the Tysons and John Lilly were co-owners of the building and lived together in the other side of the duplex from the Shusko family. Lillian's husband, Michael, who was 41, had left the house an hour or so before for his 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift as a pan operator at the Dairyman's League plant in Horsens, New York. Michael had worked at the milk processing plant for about seven years. Most of the 10 Shusko children were in bed sleeping. The family of them Washington Street on the south side of Elmira, which was, according to people who lived there at the time, otherwise known as my mom and dad, where the poor white people lived. Lillian's oldest daughter, Jane, 15, came out to join her mom on the front porch. As the two sat there, there was a loud boom noise, and the first floor of the home seemed to burst into flames. The sounds of children screaming and people yelling fire filled the air. Miller Decker lived down the street from the Shusko home. He was working on his motorcycle across the street from the house when he heard screaming and saw the duplex on fire. He couldn't get through the front door because of the thick smoke billowing out. He went around to the back of the house and climbed on the porch roof. Catherine, age 13, was at the window holding her baby sister Annette, 11 months old, in her arms. Miller pulled them out the window and helped them down off the roof. Other neighbors and people passing by tried to help, but were forced back by smoke and flames every time they tried to get into the house. Witnesses saw flames shooting out a first floor window on the north side of the house. The next door neighbor, Donald Mills, collapsed at the scene and was taken to the hospital, where he was treated for, as the Star Gazette reported, shock of the excitement. Miller Decker also had to go to the hospital to be treated for the effects of smoke inhalation. Lillian told reporters that the fire was so sudden she wasn't able to get into the house. Seven children died of smoke inhalation, or as they called it back then, asphyxiation. They were Christine, age two, Sarah, age four, Patricia, age six, Donald, age eight, Laura, age nine, Dolores, aged 11, and Michaelina, age 12. The children's bodies weren't severely burned. They all died because of the smoke. There were four children in the front bedroom, two in a double bed, and two lying on the floor, one between the beds and one in another part of the room. One child was in the bathroom, and two were in the hall. The coroner, Dr. M.E. Pittman, later reported that the four in the bedroom probably succumbed pretty quickly to the smoke. Dr. Pittman believed the three other children, the one in the bathroom and the two in the hall, were trying to escape. The neighbors on the other side of the duplex, the Tysons, had four children, but they were all away visiting relatives that night. Bennett Tyson ran out his front door and tried to get into the Shusko side, but like the others, he wasn't able to get past the fire. Some of the neighbors told reporters they wanted to enter the home, but, quote, some man stood in the front door and refused to let them pass. 
They went to the back door, but there was too much smoke. Bennett Tyson told the paper he was the one blocking the way. He said it was impossible to get into the house and he didn't want anyone trying. Michael Shusko arrived on the scene where he was told of his children's deaths. He sobbed and cried, oh, my children, all those innocent children. They never did anything to anyone. Women crowded around Lillian trying to comfort her. She cried, I want my babies. I want my children. Give me my children. Please give me my children. A neighbor said, oh God, how could anything like this happen? They're dead. That's all there is to it. Dead. Seven kids gone. Who can believe it? Another neighbor, the paper said her voice rose to a shrill scream, cried, oh, those poor tykes. Oh, how could this have happened to anybody? I never heard of anything like this. What's the world coming to? Here's a quote from the Sunday Star Gazette. Men, too, were crying openly as they tried to comfort the women. Grimy, stained firemen paused for breath and went back to the horrible job of preparing the bodies for shipment. No one could believe it, but the seven little bodies came from the charred house covered in gray-white blankets, a tragedy of tragedies. The fire department, the police, and the district attorney's office were investigating the cause of the fire. They wouldn't confirm that they thought it was arson, though it was clear they suspected it. The day before the fire, the fire department visited the Shusko home twice because of fires that Deputy Fire Chief Custy Bubax said were set deliberately. The first time firefighters were called was at 12.50 p.m. There were two fires in a second floor bedroom. The Star Gazette said two fires were raging. So I'm assuming they were significant if they were raging. Or it's just bad writing. I know. One damaged a dresser and a window shade, and the other damaged a window shade. At 3.08 p.m. Friday, the fire department received another call to the Shusko house. This time, there was a fire in the first floor bedroom that burned curtains and a window shade. At the same time, they found a mattress on fire in a second floor bedroom. After the fatal fire, Deputy Fire Chief Benjamin Prawl told reporters that the fire had started in a first floor room off the kitchen, which was in the back of the house. He said, quote, the cause is unknown. It had to be started inside if it was started. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say if it was started or not, but it seems to have originated inside. I don't know the cause, end quote. Mm. In a joint statement, Police Chief Eugene Golden and District Attorney Paul McCabe said there had been no arrest because there was as yet no reason to make an arrest. They said that at the moment, it was a fire of unknown origin and could well have been an accident. That was the story at press time in the early hours of Sunday morning, July 12th. Shortly after noon on Sunday, neighbors stood around the burned out shell and a steady stream of cars drove by with people gawking at the ruined house. A police officer went over to a safety patrol car, which was parked near the house. He raised the microphone of the public address system to his mouth and announced to the crowd that Jane Ann Chesko had confessed to setting the fire. The people on the street gasped. One man walking home from church said, may God have mercy. Mm. Neighbors were shocked. None of them had a bad thing to say about Jane. Mrs. Leo Colin, who lived across the street at 113 and a half, said Jane wasn't perfect, but took care of her siblings constantly. William McCall, <laughs> Mrs. Cullen's next door neighbor, told a reporter how he tried to save the children, but he couldn't get to them. He said he saw Donald in the bathroom window trying to escape. It was awful, man, awful, he said. Mrs. Jenny Parker, who lived on nearby John Street, said Michael was a strict father, but he was only trying to do what was right. He was trying to bring them up right. Of Jane, Jenny said, she's a nervous type of girl. I don't think she did it. 
I think they just pecked away at her until she finally admitted it. Another unnamed neighbor said Jane was always taking care of the kids and she wasn't able to do what normal girls do. Mrs. Clara Wood, another neighbor from John Street who knew the family for 15 years, agreed that Michael was strict, but she said he was trying to do what was right. I just can't believe it. I just can't believe she would do it. She's such a quiet girl. Jacob Parker, who lived next door to the family, said, the kids never bother anyone. They played in the backyard. What can anyone say now? As Jacob spoke with a reporter, he sat on his doorstep at number 118 with Henry Lovich, the neighborhood dry cleaner. Henry said, they were good customers and such nice people. Archie Herman, a neighbor and local grocer, knew Jane well. He said Jane bought bread from him every day. He said she was always so polite. I'd say she's an average girl. Did she really do it? By Monday, July 13th, all the newspapers in Elmira and the surrounding towns had similar headlines on the front pages. The Star Gazette Evening Edition had the headline, Girl Admits She Started Fire Fatal to Seven in Family, with an explanation point. Underneath in smaller type, doesn't know reason. The front page showed a photo of nine of the children taken before baby Annette was born. On the far left of the group in the photo was a smiling Jane holding baby Christina. Underneath that photo was one of Jane being escorted to the Shimon County Jail flanked by Chief Deputy Sheriff Thomas Wilmot and Mrs. Mildred Kerr, who was a jail matron. Jane was taller than both of the adults. Another photo showed Catherine Shushko, the 13-year-old sister holding Annette, the baby. The caption reads, survivors. Above that photo was one of a metal bed frame in a burned out box springs in front of a window, through which was a view of neighbors standing in the street and the house across the street, people sitting on the porch. A smaller headline said, saddened Shushko's standby daughter. The Elmira advertiser's front page said, Girl 15 admits setting fire. Below it read, parents find admission hard to believe. The news that Jane had signed a police statement admitting to the fires broke about noon on Sunday, June 12th. In her four-page statement, Jane said she had tossed a lighted match on a box of papers in a closet off the dining room. She also admitted to setting the fires on Friday, July 10th. She was charged with juvenile delinquency, but because of her age, details about the hearing were not disclosed. She was not sent to Foster Hall, which was the children's detention home. Instead, she was put in the county jail under 24-hour guard by a matron. Children's court judge Daniel Donahoe told the news, we are keeping the utmost vigilance for the protection of herself and for the children housed at Foster Hall. Judge Donahoe ordered a battery of tests for Jane. It remained to be seen what would happen to her. Since she was only 15, any sentence handed down in children's court would expire upon her 21st birthday. But it would depend on what the judge ordered and how the case was executed. For their part, Michael and Lillian did not believe Jane could have started the fire. Michael said, give us our daughter back. That's the only way anyone can help us. Lillian said she loved those kids. She wouldn't have done a thing to hurt them. Michael said she didn't do it. She didn't do it. Lillian said, we don't believe for a minute that she did it. She loved them and she knew how I loved them. But if we're wrong, if she did it, 
she must have been mixed up, out of her mind. Michael and Lillian and their two surviving daughters were staying at Lillian's sister's house. As she sat with her husband and daughters in her sister's kitchen, Lillian told a reporter, I was sitting on the porch with Jane. Shortly before 11 o'clock, she went upstairs to check on the children, and she said they were all asleep and all right. She wanted to check because they were scared to go to bed after the two fires Friday. She always took good care of them. I never had to worry about them when they were with her. After the first fire, Jane was very upset. She said, Mommy, do you know Daddy and the baby could have been burned? The Shusko family had its share of issues. Although they weren't famous or well-known, you can learn a lot by reading what you can find in the newspapers and sometimes reading between the lines. Mm. Michael seriously injured his leg when he was seven, growing up in Lopez, Pennsylvania. He needed so much care that he spent two years in Robert Packer Hospital in Sayre, Pennsylvania. Lopez is an unincorporated township east of Scranton. As of 2010, the population was 501 people. It's pretty small in the 1930s, too, when Michael was growing up. It could have been about the same size. It's hard to find out. Almira, where Lillian grew up, is about 60 miles northwest of Lopez, just over the border of New York and Pennsylvania. Lillian Lovell and Michael Shusko became engaged in October 1943. She worked for Almira Knitting Mills, and he worked for the Remington Rand plant in Almira. Remington Rand made typewriters, guns, and electric razors. Mm. The plant in Almira seemed to just make the typewriters. In November 1943, they were married. It was a short engagement. The wedding announcement said they'd be living at 511 East Church Street. Side note, one thing I find interesting, which of course you know more about, Mo, is that every person's address is given in the papers, even if the address isn't relevant. And I know it's to identify them, but like nowadays they wouldn't do that right. because of privacy issues, but they do it. Like we no did way- a, when I first started working for papers, we did it. I don't know when they stopped. Even the most like person where the address has nothing right. to do with anything, they'll say Mrs. Smith of right. 21, you know, and, Jones that, and that was always to make it clear that you were talking about that. Mrs. Yeah. Smith and, and now they usually was- put their town in age. Right. Seems like well, we that. were always, always, always used to put age too, but I think back then they didn't because women didn't want their ages on or whatever. Yeah, but- I know. It's so weird. In April 1944, it was reported that PFC Michael Shusko was spending a 10-day furlough at his home in Sayre, Pennsylvania. He had been stationed at Drew Field in Florida. I'm pretty sure this isn't the same Michael Shusko because it makes no mention of his wife, but Sayre is between Lopez and Almira. One weird thing about this item is it says that Michael's brother was also on a furlough, and his name is Mickey. And I'm like, is it Mickey a nickname for Michael? Why would you have a son Mickey and a son Michael? Just saying. Well, well, maybe it usually is a nickname for Michael. But for instance, Mickey Mantle, Mickey was his actual name because he was named after the great St. Louis Cardinals catcher, Mickey Cochran. So maybe that Mickey was named after Mickey Cochran or somebody too. He wouldn't have been named after Mickey Mantle because Mickey Mantle wasn't playing baseball yet. Yes, that makes sense. But anyways, I'm sure that wasn't him because I don't think he served in the military because of his leg issue. Mm. And also when I was doing my research, I read his mother's obituary and they didn't mention anyone named Mickey, but I just thought it was funny. On May 28th, 1944, the reason for the short engagement was apparent. I can't um, imagine what it is you're about to say. Michael and Lillian Shusko welcomed a baby girl. Uh, this was Jane Ann. Their address then was 963 Charles Street. In January 1946, Michael was treated at St. Joseph's Hospital for a dog bite on his leg. The family lived at 
915 Sullivan Street. In February of that year, Michael's father, John Philip Shushko, John Philip Souza, no, John Philip Shusko died. On March 15th, 1948, the Shuskos of 307 Tuttle Ave, Elmira welcomed a daughter. That would have been Dolores, age 11 at the time of the fire. I didn't see any birth announcements for Catherine Michaelina. On November 26, 1950, Donald was born. The family was still living at 307 Tuttle Ave. I looked all of the addresses of their houses up on Google Earth. The first two are still there, and they look like they were built in the early 1900s. Tuttle Avenue was wiped out to make room for a highway at some point. On June 8, 1952, three men were injured by a brick wall collapsing on them. They were tearing down a building. There was an eight-man crew, and the three injured were in the basement of the home. The other five got them out, and one of the uninjured rescuers was Michael Shusko of Tuttle Ave. On July 19, 1952, Patricia was born. In October of that same year, Michael was charged with having no flares on his truck. In December 1952, Donald, who was two, was treated at St. Joseph's Hospital for second-degree burns on his elbow. He had bumped against a hot stove. On March 14, 1954, Miss Mallory's fourth grade class at number nine school put on a safety play with the title, Safety Pays Now and Always, and the children sang a song. Jane Ann Shusko played the mother in the play mm. about safety, ironically. In October 1954, Sarah was born. The Shusko address was now listed as 710 John Street. This house is gone now, taken over by hospital sprawl for St. Joseph's Hospital, as is Washington Street, mm-hmm. where they lived. On April 9th, 1955, this notice appeared in the Star Gazette. Notice of sale. Household goods and property belonging to the following people. There are a bunch of names listed, and among them is Michael Shusko. Then it says, will be sold for storage charges at public auction May 14, 1955, 10 a.m. at Diamond and Bacorn, 214 Washington Street, Elmira, New York. December 18, 1955, the Star Gazette ran a photo showing sixth grade girls, among them Jane Shusko, preparing food for a class party. The caption said, busy hands. Seems like these were common in schools throughout Chemung County last week as the three R's were put aside for the moment and the gaiety of Christmas reigned. On September 11th, 1956, Christine was born. The Shushko's address at this time was listed at 114 Washington Street, which may have been incorrect because on October 25th, 1956, Sarah Shushko, age two, was treated at St. Joseph's Hospital for a burn on her right hand and chest caused Mm. by hot water. And the address given was 116 and a half Washington Street. On December 12th, 1956, Jane was one of the, quote, village people in a Christmas Mm. pageant at the school where she was in seventh grade, the Thomas K. Beecher School. The next year, Jane was promoted to the role of Mary in the Christmas pageant at Beecher School. The reason I listed all this stuff I found in the papers is to give you an idea of what the Shusko family life was like. As I said, reading between the lines, you see they moved a lot. They had a kid an average of every 18 months or so. They were evicted and their stuff was sold at auction and they were poor, which of course they were. They had 10 kids. Michael Shusko was raised in the Russian Orthodox faith. I don't know much about that religion, except that if it's like a lot of religions, especially back then, having a lot of kids was encouraged. It's similar to Catholicism. Yeah. Anyone from a large family knows that when you have a lot of kids, the older children, especially the girls, take on a lot of the chores Mm -hmm. and the child care. 
Younger listeners may not have seen this as much, but we come, you and Mimo, come from a family of six, which seems fairly large to a lot of people. But when we, we went to Catholic school and many of the students were from families of eight kids or 10 kids, 12, our father's family has 14 children. I grew up in Elmira. It wasn't unusual. And Jane was the oldest. It couldn't have been easy. Her life was not. On November 5th, 1958, there was an article in the Star Gazette with the headline, Missing EFA Student Object of Police Hunt. And EFA stands for Almira Free Academy, which was the high school. The article is short, so I'll read it. A missing Almira Free Academy student was the object of an intensive search by Shimung County law enforcement authorities last night. She is Jane Ann Shusko, 14, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Michael Shusko of 116 and a half Washington Street, who has not been seen since she left school yesterday about 3.30 p.m. Police said they were notified of the missing girl by her parents after they became alarmed when she did not return home by 4.50 p.m. The girl's father said last night that his daughter always returns home from school promptly. After hearing of the missing girl on the radio, an unidentified woman telephoned police and said she had seen someone answering the girl's description talking to a man in a car on Lake Street near the academy. The woman did not know whether the girl entered the car. City police notified the Chemung County Sheriff's Department and Horsehead State Police and sent out an all-points teletype alarm. Mr. Shusko told police last night that his daughter is a good girl and never would enter a car without being forced to do so. He said he received a telephone call about 9.30 p.m. Someone said simply hello and then hung up. I am sure it was my daughter, said Shusko. Police checked all the girl's friends, but none knew her whereabouts. Shusko issued the following plea last night. Janie, if you see this in the paper, please come home. Daddy wants you to come home if you can, and we will not punish you. The next morning, this was in the paper. Missing student found. Missing since Tuesday afternoon, Jane Ann Chusco, 14, of 116 and a half Washington Street, was located by city police yesterday morning and returned to her home. Police said the Elmira Free Academy student was found about 8.25 a.m. at the home of a friend. So again, read between the lines. Who knows why she took off? And I'm not big on speculation, but I think it's reasonable to guess that she was under a lot of stress and pressure, Mm. helping her mother with all those kids, trying to do her schoolwork and get good grades, and just being 14 years old, which sucks in and of itself. Maybe she wanted to get away for good, but maybe she just needed a break. At the time of the fatal fire... The Shuskos were about to be evicted from the Washington Street house. Lillian said, we were thrown out on the street about three or four years ago, too. We stayed with relatives for a few days. Then we had to go to a mission house to stay. I was pregnant. There were no beds. We had to sleep on a quilt on the floor, and there were big bugs. Jane was very upset. She's a sensitive girl, and she knew how it hurt me. She said to me, how do we know this won't happen again, Mommy? If she did do it, and we don't believe she did, maybe that was why. Maybe she was afraid it could happen again, end quote. Jane was only able to see her parents in court the day after the fire. They weren't permitted to visit her alone. But they spoke to her at the courthouse. Lillian said, I asked her if she did it. First, she said that she didn't. Then she hesitated and looked kind of funny. I asked her again, and she said, yes, but I've got to talk to you alone, mommy. Still, her parents did not believe Jane set the fire. 
Lillian said she knew the children could have burned. She said so. She was sitting on the porch during the first fire. A man yelled to her to tell her that the house was burning and she didn't believe him. She ran off the porch and saw the shade burning. Then she ran into the house and yelled to me that the house was on fire. The second time she was in the kitchen making sandwiches for the kids. We were upstairs showing a friend what had happened in the first fire. We noticed that a mattress was burning upstairs. And then we heard Jane scream that the little room was on fire downstairs. She was really scared. Michael Shusko spent the Saturday afternoon before the fatal fire looking for a new place to live. Michael told a reporter, I found one. The man said he didn't mind children until I told him I had 10. If he had given me that apartment, they'd be alive today. Michael said of his children, I was never mean to them, strict, but never mean. Lillian said they wanted to go swimming and I wouldn't let them because I told them I wouldn't be there to help them if anything happened. They wanted to go to the playground and I told them they couldn't because they might get hurt. But what for? I might better have let them have a good time. Saturday, when they were afraid to go to bed, I told them not to worry, that I would always be there to take care of them. I just thank God Catherine was there. Michael Shusko said, will you answer me just one question? Just one question. Why are people so anxious to help now that it's too late? Why is it that people wouldn't help us then, meaning when they were evicted years before, but want to now? Lillian said, we'll always be poor, but I wouldn't take all the money in the world for my kids. On Sunday afternoon, July 12th, Jane appeared in children's court. The papers reported that although she seemed calm and composed or showed no emotion, as they Mm. like to say now during the proceedings, After court, while being taken back to jail, she started crying. I noticed in all the photographs of Jane with the jail matron, the matron Mildred Kerr is holding Jane's hand, which I thought was interesting. Oh, that's sweet. Jane was described in the newspapers as tall for her age and attractive, but not beautiful, with sandy hair. And it's hard because on all those black and white pictures, everyone looks like they have dark hair. Of course, they had to describe what she was wearing. Quote, The girl, slightly tall for her age, wore bobby socks, a straight skirt, blouse, and slipper shoes at the arraignment. Her sandy hair was closely curled. That same quote was in a lot of accounts. Mrs. Mabel Leahy, a guidance counselor at Amaya Free Academy, where Jane had just finished her freshman year, said Jane was a shy and retiring girl and very nice. Mabel also said Jane was tidy in her dress and very prompt. Jane had not taken her final exams because she was absent for most of the final month of classes. She was allowed to pass because her grades were good. Mrs. Leahy explained that Jane was never a problem and seemed to be interested in her schoolwork. Her frequent absences were because of illness, but also because she had to help with the children at home. A neighbor who did not want to be identified told the newspapers that Jane had a lot of responsibility for taking care of the children. Neighbors thought of Jane as hardworking and friendly, although quiet. They all knew Jane was her mother's helper around the house. In Jane's confession, Jane said that she started the fire in a closet off the dining room by lighting fire to some papers in a box. Then she closed the closet door and went out to join her mother on the porch. Although Jane and Lillian, as well as other witnesses, all heard an explosive noise, Deputy Fire Chief Prowl said there is no indication there was an explosion. The first alarm was at 11.10 p.m. and another one came in at 11.17 p.m. Investigators were certain that the fire started in a closet on the first floor at the southeast corner of the dining room. The fire went up through the ceiling into the bathroom above it. 
A waste pipe from the bathroom came down through the closet. The fire was so hot that it melted all the lead soldering off the bathroom pipes. The closet door burned away and the flames came into the living room and quickly spread back to the kitchen and forward into the living room. The fire shot up the stairway, cutting off the escape route for the children upstairs. Benjamin Prawl tried to enter the home when he and the other firefighters arrived, but he said it was too tough, end quote. The first floor on the Shusko side was fully engulfed by men. Flames were shooting out the windows. The firefighters put a ladder up to the front porch roof of the house, but they could not get in. This was after Catherine and Annette had been rescued by the neighbor. The aluminum ladder was put against the roof and it was about 10 feet from the front window, but there was so much heat that the ladder was too hot to climb. Once they were able to hose the porch roof off, they broke the front windows to get in. When the window broke, the room burst into flames, which shot out the windows, forcing them back. Ben Prawl later said nobody living could have gotten into the room to get those children out. Deputy Fire Chief Prawl said that the boom people heard may have been a large piece of furniture falling or food containers exploding in the heat. He said there was nothing to indicate an accelerant such as gas or kerosene was used to start the fire. My question is, and they don't mention it in any of the papers, is did they have a gas stove? I know. That's what I was thinking. And I also think it's interesting that if she closed the door to the closet, the fire would spread like that because it would lack oxygen. It's just like if you start a fire in the house and all the windows are closed. Yeah. We'll talk. Yeah. I've got some theories later. No room was spared in the house. The family lost everything in the fire. In 20 minutes, the home was destroyed. There were four bedrooms upstairs and a bathroom. The girls all slept in the front bedroom. Donald, the eight-year-old boy, slept in the rear bedroom. The parents slept in another one, and apparently another one wasn't used. I don't know why. So you had seven girls? Eight. Eight girls in one bedroom? and No, nine girls. Nine Nine girls. I mean, there there are babies and stuff. I mean, there was a time when you, me, and Liz... When we lived in Michigan, all shared a room and three girls in one room was a lot. Like the Brady's. Yeah. Yeah. There was no fire damage on the Tyson Lily side of the duplex, but there was significant smoke damage, which I also think is where, but maybe there was a firewall in between them. Ben Prawl told the newspapers, we were a pretty sorry crew when we came back talking about the fact that seven children died. Miller Decker, the man who rescued Catherine and baby Annette, was caught on camera covering his face and crying as he was told that seven other children died. Millard himself was the father of five children. The Star Gazette printed a picture of him sitting on the couch with his four daughters, ages 18 months to six years old, and his son, Millard Jr., who was three. It seems like he was on the same schedule as (laughs) this. goes yeah well they all were yeah the red cross asked for clothing and household goods for the remaining chescos but not money they were apparently not authorized to and they also mentioned that i didn't put the name of the store but michael didn't need clothes because some clothing store was giving him all free men's clothes It wasn't Izzard's. It was some men's clothing store on the editorial page that monday the star gazette wrote And this is my dramatic reading again. It is more than 32 years since a fire in this community has claimed so fearful a toll. April 12th, 1927, to be exact. That was when Mr. and Mrs. Amos Henkel and their four small children lost their lives in the destruction of a farm tenant house near Wells Bridge. But the Henkel fire was an accident. 
Saturday night's fire on Washington Street in which seven children of Mr. and Mrs. Michael Shusko of 116 and a half Washington Street lost their lives has been reported by police and the district attorney as having been set by Jane Ann Shusko, 15, a high school freshman and the eldest child in the family. The disclosure added shock in a city already deeply shocked by the deaths of the girl's brother and six sisters, the eldest 12, the youngest two. To the parents of the victims and to the three children who escaped death, a community extends its sympathy. Efforts were quickly organized to provide clothing and other necessities for them because their possessions were destroyed. The community will be generous in its response. Let it be equally generous in withholding its judgment of Jane Ann Shusko. That's the job for the law, and the law is already doing its work. When Jane left court that Sunday afternoon, her parents grabbed her hands and cried with her, but then she was led away and they couldn't talk to her. The New York Daily News made a big deal about the fire with the headline, Girl 15 Fires Own Home, Seven Children Die. They got some facts wrong, calling Miller Decker, Charles Decker, that name was in some of the first accounts, saying that another child named Joan was not home at the time of the fire. Not only do they have some of the things correct, but they paint Jane as unfeeling. Here's a quote from one of their stories. Jane was at a neighbor's house when the newsman reached the scene, seeking identification of the victims. No one appeared to have the information until Jane said, I can give them to you. She appeared only slightly shaken as she offered the names and ages of her dead brother and sisters. They were Donald 8, Michaeline 12, Doris 11, Laura 9, Patsy 7, Sarah 4, and Christine 2. Of course, everyone wanted to know why Jane would do such a thing, which is what they always want to know when someone Mm -hmm. does something. How could she burn down her own house and kill her siblings? Police Captain J. William Maloney told reporters from her statement, the girl didn't appear to have been mad at anyone of the family, nor was she holding a grudge. There is no definite motive. It's a very vague thing. Mm -hmm. Some news accounts said that Chief Maloney described Jane as very upset, but not remorseful. After her arraignment, which was closed to the public because it was children's court, Jane went to the jail. The coroner had ruled the children's deaths homicide. We'll talk later, but I'm curious about many things, like how long was she questioned and were her parents there? I don't think they were there. More than one article says under lengthy questioning, she was unable to offer any reason for setting any of the fires, police said. The phrase lengthy questioning caught my eye, but we'll discuss that later. On July 15th, there was a funeral for the seven Chusco children at the First Church of the Nazarene. They were buried at Woodlawn Cemetery. About 200 mourners attended and five hearses carried the small white coffins in the funeral procession. At the service, the Reverend Everett W. Kaufman quoted, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Those Bible phrases just roll right off your tongue like you were born to them. It was reported that Judge Donahoe, after talking to Jane's psychiatrist, ruled that she would not be allowed to attend her siblings' funeral. On August 6, 1959, a grand jury for four women and 16 men indicted Jane Ann Shusko on seven counts of murder after hearing testimony from 19 witnesses. However, they recommended that the case be considered for handling in children's court. According to the law at the time, from what I understand, the only thing they could indict her on was first degree murder because she was under 16. Anyone 16 or older could be indicted for other felonies. The law at the time in New York was that 
a child of more than seven, but less than 16 years of age, would not usually be prosecuted except for juvenile delinquency, even for a crime that would mean life in prison or the death penalty for an adult. But there was an addition to the law. However, a child who shall have reached his 15th birthday, but not have reached his 16th birthday, who shall commit any act or omission of which, if committed by an adult, would be punishable by death or life imprisonment, other than the crime punishable with imprisonment for an indeterminate term, having a minimum of one day and a maximum of his natural life, may be indicted, tried, and convicted in the same manner as an adult, unless an order removing the action to children's court has been made and filed, pursuant to Section 312C, Subdivision C, Section 312F, Subdivisions A and B of the Code of Criminal Procedure. End quote. Wow. I wonder if some 15-year-old committed a murder I know. at some point, well, and so they passed a law. What this meant was that because Jane was 15, she wouldn't automatically be tried in children's court. The DA, grand jury, or the court had to recommend she be tried as a child. If the DA or grand jury initiated the recommendation, the court had to approve it. Hmm. District Attorney Paul McCabe said that if the recommendation was approved, the murder charge would be dropped. The DA was going to seek an arraignment before the state Supreme Court who would make the decision. My reading, too, it would have to be something really, really bad. So like a 15-year-old planned a murder and killed somebody. Right. The grand jury recommended children's court because of Jane's age and circumstances surrounding the case, although they didn't say what those circumstances were. However, DA McCabe had presented the finding of Jane's psychological test to the grand jury. So it's a good guess that whatever those tests had said influenced their recommendation. New York State Supreme Court Judge Floyd Anderson ordered Jane's indictment sealed. If the judge decided she would go to children's court, her case would be private and sealed. No one would know anything. If the judge refused to transfer Jane to children's court, all proceedings from the beginning of the case would retroactively become public. Nowadays, the wording would be if Jane was tried as an adult, it would be public. But back then, it seems that the process was almost a backward version of what we have today. When she was indicted for murder, she was considered an adult. But she could be ruled as a child and not go on trial for murder. Mm -hmm. So it's almost the opposite. Jane went back to jail to await the decision. The decision on how to handle Jane's trial didn't take long. On August 12th, Justice Anderson ruled that Jane would be tried in children's court, dismissing the first degree murder indictment. In his decision, the judge wrote, it is the opinion of this court that the ends of justice, the best interest of the state and the welfare of the defendant, Jane Chesko, will be best served by removing the action to the Children's Court of Chemung County. The Star Gazette ran an editorial by Cove Hoover, Mm. the title, The Case of Jane Ann. And here's another dramatic reading. There are those who immediately decried the fact that the case of Jane Ann Chesko held in the fire caused deaths of her younger brother and six sisters has been transferred to the privacy of the children's court chambers. Although newspapermen and newspapers are among the first on any occasion to challenge secrecy in public matters of any form, it can be conceded that the best interests of all concerned have been taken into account by placing the action in this jurisdiction. The grand 
jury comprised of responsible Shimon County citizens recommended that the case be investigated for this type of handling, and Supreme Court Justice Floyd E. Anderson dismissed a first-degree murder indictment against the 15-year-old girl following a thorough investigation and acknowledging the jury's thinking. District Attorney Paul H. McCabe, in commenting on Justice Anderson's ruling, termed it a proper, fair disposition. Jane Ancesco admitted to authorities that she set the fire in which her brother and sisters died. It's also true that the details of how and why will not be publicly disclosed. It also should be remembered that speculation and rumor on the part of any portion of our citizenry will not change what happened, nor will it answer the questions in the minds of those who feel they have the right to know. Thus, This is a time when a community can weigh the words of Justice Anderson, who said in part in his decision, it is the opinion of this court that the ends of justice, the best interest of the state, and the welfare of the defendant, Jane Chesko, will be best served by removing the action. This should be enough for those inclined to be sterner in such matters. It should be enough for those inclined to be sympathetic and understanding. None of us should forget that a young girl stands before the community as a tragic figure in a sad circumstance. These are among the things we find amid the tears of the world. Did you like my reading? Yes. Since her case was private, not much was written for a couple months. But in October 1959, it was reported that Judge Daniel Donahoe of the Children's Court said that Jane had been transferred from the Chemung County Jail to an unnamed mental hospital. The Star Gazette reported court officials said that it is hoped that the treatment for the girl who was transferred last Friday will qualify her for admission to a school which will help meet her needs and assist in her rehabilitation. In the years following the fire, every time there was a fatal fire with multiple deaths in Elmira, the Shusko fire was brought up. It remains the worst loss of life in a house fire in Elmira's history. I read about the Shusko family after the tragedy, keeping tabs on them through the newspapers. In 1966, Lillian Shusko, who lived at 411 William Street at that time, was fined $150 for driving while intoxicated. Mm. Her license was revoked. It didn't say for how long. And she had a 10-day suspended jail sentence. She'd had a fender bender at 1.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning in December and refused to take a breath test. Mm. The guy who killed our uncle just the year before, drunk going through a red light without a license, was fined like $10 or $15. I know. On July 15th, 1967, Catherine Chusco got married to Edward Slater. So she was only like 21. She was the Mm. older sister. I mean, not the older, but the right, one, the one so. remaining, right? In the August 22, 1971 Star Gazette, there's a photo of Annette and a boy posing on what looks like the front step of a school. The caption says, seventh grader Annette Shusko and sixth grader Michael Higley are ready for school fashion-wise. Annette's double-breasted wool blazer is symbolic of the importance of that classic garment this year. Hers is navy with red trim, topping a navy pleated shirt. Michael's outfit, a maroon sweater with pointed collar and front industrial zipper and blue and maroon tweed striped flare leg pants. Mm. Reading items in the paper after 1975, it seems like Michael, the father, remarried someone named Mary because there are a lot of articles about a young woman with a different last name, but they say that she's the daughter of Michael... Well, Mr. and Mrs. Michael Shusko. So when did Lillian die? 
She didn't die. I think they got divorced. Oh, oh, okay. I mean, she died, but I didn't see her obituary. Both of these children are older than Annette, too. So they're his stepchildren, and they have a different last name. On July 2nd, 1976, almost 17 years after the fire, Annette was married to Michael Kemp. So she was about 18 when she got married. I found three birth announcements for Annette, a son in 1984, a daughter in 1986, and a son in 1989. From what I've read, Jane is still living, and I assume her two sisters are as well, because they're a little older than us, but not really old. I didn't see any obituaries for any of them. Because everything was sealed in her case, it's impossible to find out how much time Jane spent in the mental hospital and what happened after that. But I can't imagine how she must have felt if she was, if she was the one that started the fire. And my mom said everyone felt really bad for Jane and her family. And she was the one, our mother was the one who suggested this case to me years ago. And I finally decided to look it up. And speaking of mom, she has a connection to the case. And I did a short interview with her. Okay, let's play it. I'm talking to my mother, Anna Maria Rossi Milliken. And you were a teacher at Elmira Free Academy in 1959, correct? Yes. It was the year 58-59. I was, it was my first year teaching, and I, of course, was not very experienced. And I had a very large homeroom, and there was one girl. Jane Ann Shushko? Yes, Shushko. Yes. And she looked very sad to me. She did not have the latest fashions like some of the other girls did. You could tell she was poor. And she was very, very quiet and sad. And I noticed she was absent a lot. And every time, of course, she had to bring an excuse. And it was always that she had to help her mother. And What's her, I, who wrote the, was it her father who wrote the I don't You know don't who remember? Wrote, oh. Who knows? She may have written it herself. I wouldn't have known <laughs> the difference. And also, I didn't realize that if somebody was absent a lot, Maybe I should report it to her guidance counselor so they could look into it, and I didn't. And that it made me very sad later when she did what she did. But the guidance counselor was interviewed in the paper and seemed aware that she missed a lot of class. So yeah. Mrs. Mabel Leahy. Mrs. Leahy, yes, I remember her. Anyway... I felt bad for her. She was really a sweet girl. Were you shocked? Oh, when we heard about the fire. So it was in the summertime, and I couldn't believe it. I was just devastated. I felt so bad for that family. I don't remember the details now. It was so long ago. Well, they were... Six girls and one boy who died of smoke inhalation. Yes. The second oldest girl saved the baby, but the other kids couldn't get out. It was very sad, and I believe it's still the worst loss of life in a fire in Elmira's history in the house fire. It probably is, and we had a few other fires where families died. died, but nothing like this one. And the other fires were not set. They were accidents. What was the overall feeling about her? Was there anger or was... No, I think there was more pity. People realized that she had problems. Yeah. And I don't recall, at least in in my circles, me and 
my husband, Jim, who was working for the newspaper at the time, and some of our friends felt bad for her more than anger. I really felt that maybe somebody should have paid more attention to the whole family well, situation. In November of 1958, she ran away. It was just overnight. But there was an article in the paper yes, that she see, was now, missing. I didn't know that. And uh, that was in November of 1958 was so when she teacher, was in my yeah. homeroom. Yes. Well, she was found the next morning. So Yeah, so I, I may have known it at the time, but I forgot. But she was a teenager. <laughs> I, I don't and, remember um, details. Also the, there were fires set at their house the day before the fire. I don't know how they handled things then, but there isn't much reporting about whether anyone... They knew the fires were set, but they didn't mention, did they talk to the children? To find out who, like, the, she admitted yeah. to setting those two, too, but she may not have. And she may not have set. She I might mean, have been trying to. to I was to, thinking she may not have. I'm very dubious of, of police confessions, especially she had been up all night and she was 15 years old. And she was a child. And I don't right. know if her parents were she with her when they talked the to police her. And um, what they so she may hear. or may not have done it. I'm not saying she didn't do it. I mean, there are 10 kids in that family. Yeah, it was a large family um, and they were very poor. Yes, they were. They had a lot of issues, unfortunately. Yes. Well, thank you for talking to me. Well, you're welcome. It's a sad story. It is. A I'm not sad. doing any more sad stories for a while. It's a sad story. I think now it Days. There's more, more intervention of, yeah. of problem children, Although it seems, problem families, yeah. although we still have tragedies. Yeah. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. We should tell people our mom is 86. Yes. It was and her she, first year of teaching. First year, and she was very youngish. She's still young at heart. Yes. She was a young, a naive, young, naive, young yes. woman. Also, her concern that she didn't report the absences. My assumption is, and maybe mom just doesn't remember this, that when you, you're a homeroom teacher and take attendance, the attendance you take goes to the office. And we saw that Mabel Leahy knew about the right. absences. Right. So. I thought it was valuable to talk to her because, like I said, there didn't seem to be any animosity. People right. seemed real. It kind of reminds me of the way people reacted to Constance Fisher. I don't remember which episode, but the one that killed her children, that they understood that it was sad. Had to be a people reason. People were more sympathetic back then. I think. Although I did, when I was just scrolling through pictures, I saw one of Jane where there was a big thing over at Mass Murderer. And oh, I, I think, didn't see that. And I think even if she did set the fire, I wouldn't think it would be with the intention to kill anyone. I, I believe that newspapers that were not from the area were a lot more right. uh, sensationalistic. So anyway, uh, just some final thoughts and then we can discuss Yeah, it. what are your thoughts? As I said to mom, I'm always dubious about confessions, especially from distraught teenagers who've probably been up all night. I think it's quite possible she didn't do it, but it could be argued that she did. The American Psychological Association breaks down childhood and adolescent fire starters into the following group. Curiosity, accidental, non-pathological fire starters, the most common type, they often do not understand the consequences of fire play and tend to be five to 10 years old. Interventions may include fire safety education, evaluation for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and parent training. Cry for help. Children who consciously or subconsciously use fire to draw attention to a stress in their life. 
Common problems underlying this type are depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or family stress. Interventions may include cognitive behavioral therapy, treatment for depression, medication consultation, and family therapy. Delinquent. Mm. Fire starters who often show little empathy for others, but tend to avoid harming others. Typically 11 to 15 year olds. They cause significant property damage and often show common aggression and conduct problems. Interventions may include behavior management, empathy training, relaxation techniques, and treatment for depression. Severely disturbed. Children with a fixation on fire, including paranoid and psychotic children who may want to harm or kill themselves. Interventions may include intensive inpatient or outpatient cognitive behavioral therapy and social skills training. Cognitively impaired, developmentally disabled or impaired children. They tend to lack good judgment, but avoid intentional harm. Significant property damage is common. Interventions may include special education, intensive fire education, and behavior management. Sociocultural. Children who set fires primarily for support from peers or community groups, such as those fires set during riots or in a religious fervor. Mm. Interventions may include traditional psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and family therapy. I think if Jane did it, she would be in the cry for help category or possibly the sociocultural category. But one of the other children could have well done it. In the curiosity category, or maybe one of the other types, we know nothing about the other children's lives, so we don't know. Mm -hmm. Jane easily could have been covering for a sibling, or she could have confessed for any number of reasons. Even neighbor Mrs. Jenny Parker was suspicious of the police saying they may have pecked away at her Mm -hmm. until she confessed. And that's my story. And I am on the fence as to whether a fire can smolder for a long time before it bursts. It seems unlikely that she would have said it when she had just, it would have burst like that if she had just Well, they gone. did, one of the stories that I did say said that they thought it had been started about an hour before it oh, burst. Oh, okay. I mean, it's a rickety old house, so she yes. could have closed. But yes. also, I was thinking, it's right above the bathroom. I don't want to pass dispersions on any of the other right. children. Who knows where right. and all And as we also know, fire science, arson science has come a long way over the past 70 years. And a lot of people were wrongly convicted on fire evidence that was misread and misunderstood even in more recent years. It's only been the last 10 years that they've really started revising fire stuff. There was nothing to blame her for it except for her quote-unquote confession. confession. And that's... And if it had been set before, and who knows, you're talking about nine kids in bed. When, when we were kids, were we all in bed asleep when we had been sent to bed? There could have been anything going on up there. And the other thing is, what frustrated me in reading it is when they went to that house twice because fires were set, did they talk to the children? Who did they talk? Did they find out who had set those fires then? Did they talk to the parents and say, look, somebody's setting these, or did they just say, oh, someone must have been playing with Matt? And also, and because too, if Jane Ann was unhappy, his mom, you know, said she wasn't stuff, who knows who else was unhappy in that house? It's a lot of kids. There was a 13-year-old girl, a 12-year-old girl, an 11-year-old girl. Jane Ann probably wasn't the only person who was unhappy. And also, like I said, could be curiosity, could right. play with matches. They all do it. I mean, right. not they all do it, but it's common. 
It could have been one of the younger ones. It could have been the boy because it seems like it's a lot of times it's a boy right. thing. His bedroom was next to the bathroom, which was above where it supposedly started. When the only proof of something is someone's confession, yeah. it's really hard for me to believe that. Nowadays, a lot of places, if there's a confession, a lot of jurisdictions require other evidence as well. Especially she's a, a young girl. right? And I'm not even saying she eventually she confessed. Couldn't to cover it up if they read technique or whatever yes, exactly it, it, she may have confessed just because she was in shock and tired of being pecked and at. she might start second guessing herself right maybe i did do it and don't remember maybe i like i said lengthy questioning oh are you sure you didn't just light a match and throw it in that closet Whoever said it, I don't think it was out of malice to hurt anyone. Well, yeah, I feel like the police might have focused on her because they said, well, she was the only one awake, right. assuming the other kids are asleep, which right. I, the I little ones, the little ones that died quickly were asleep. Right. The th- other three, who knows? The 13 year old was awake enough to get the baby and try to get out who knows if the boy was seen in the window it's such a horrible it is a horrible story story. it's a sad story and as i texted you i don't know why i keep doing these dead kids story because it's just i don't either coincidentally we are going to elmira this weekend for a family a thing and the hotel you and i are staying at the clarion is about a block from where the fire would have been yes that whole neighborhood has been taken over by St. Joseph's Hospital and and there's a lot of Millican family connections we were born in St. Joseph's Hospital we'll we'll see when we're in Elmira if there's any pictures we can put on our Instagram their graves where Mark Twain is also buried and so is Ernie Davis the Elmira Express yeah and countless relatives of ours yeah. So that was good. That's an interesting story. And we did talk years ago, back when I was living with mom and dad. Yeah. So right after we started doing this podcast. And my, about- mom is the one that told me about Norman Horton too. Yeah. So. Wow. She always liked Grizzly stories for a sweet person. I mean, yes. when we were babies, like she'd Ugh. sing us that song about the dead little boy whose stuffed mm-hmm. animals were collecting yeah. dust. And she had some good stories. Um, the valedictorian who's the tree limb fell on her house. Yeah. While she was-, was in the, the uh, Elmira College campus. At right. And and then the girl who ran back in to get her prom dress and the mm-hmm. fire and died. So she she always entertained us with stories yes. like that. And I did read about several fires while I was doing this. And, but anyway, I have a recommendation. Yay! Okay. <laughs> so my NNW, it's not nothing crime related. We had talked about several crime related ones to do joint ones yes. on, but it, it would involve rewatching things and stuff. And frankly, I've been pretty busy working and stuff and just kind of zoning out at night. And because I had Discovery Plus, because of your last episode and that show Ordained to Kill or whatever. (laughs) Ordained um, to Kill. I started watching a show that originated on the DIY Network, Main Cabin Masters. I was already familiar with it because when I was working at my last job, I had to write a real estate feature every week and they had done a cabin for the Kennebec Land Trust. So I watched the show at the time on my iPad and then watched a couple others. There's some things that annoy me about it. And I also didn't like just watching things on my iPad and wherever I was watching it didn't connect to my Chromecast. Blah, blah. But then a couple of weeks ago, 
you know, I was looking for something to watch and I saw that on Discovery Plus and I said, oh, maybe I'll start watching. And for whatever reason, Ooh. I've started binge watching. Did I start watching I think it it's just, yeah, independently you of you? No, Nick- I had told you I was watching. Oh, yeah. And Nikki. So, like, right. So it. anyway, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's one of those DIY home improvement shows. It's Chase Morrill, who owns a company in Maine called Kennebec Cabin something or other. Company, I think. They redo Maine old, what we call a Maine camps which are cabins on lakes and in the woods and stuff. They're a main tradition. I mean, I know they have them at other places too, but Maine's got a lot of them. And this is what these guys specialize in. It's him. It's his sister, Ashley. They're both in their 40s. Ashley's husband, Ryan. And then there are two main helpers, Dixie, whose real name is Matt Dix, and Jedi, oh. whose name is Jared something. I do like it. And I think that that most of our listeners would be able to find it, if not on Discovery Plus, then probably on YouTube or other places. Bad reenactments. They do not have reenactments, thankfully. Most of these DIY shows don't, so that's good. Thank so. God. Narrative cliches, I am taking away a point. <gasps> because based on the cliches of DIY home improvement shows, there are too much contrived hijinks more in yes. the earlier season the first couple seasons than later but still you don't need the high jinx i hate those they just contrive shit they do the cliche thing the kind of cliffhanger thing where there's mm. a crisis and then you come back from the commercial and it's not a crisis after all exactly. but all these shows have kind of that formula where in the middle there's some big crisis they have to overcome oh the beams are the wrong size or yeah. you know all of them have that, you know, oh, we ordered the wrong tiles. Oh, no. Oh, this is going to be $100,000. Not this on this show because they don't have prices that high. But, you know, and then it gets solved and everybody goes their merry way. And if I hear the fucking phrase, making memories one more <laughs> fucking time, I'm going to throw my TV out the window. And it's not just them. It's everybody. I hate that phrase. I just think it, and I'm sorry if I'm offending everybody out there who thinks it's a wonderful way to capture life or something. Let's just but, make memories. But, yeah, fuck, make this fucking memory. <laughs> but to me, it's one of those just phony little phrases people say when they think they're saying something profound. But I always, what I always take from it is what they're really saying is we're not doing this to have fun in the moment. We're doing this for Instagram and Facebook. And so we can talk about it later, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, taking a point away for, I know it's not their fault that people say that, although it has been said by them, but it's also said by the people they do the cabins for. Racial gender obtuseness, no racial. There is a guy who's on once in a while who never talks, who may be a person of color. It's hard to say, but as we always say, (laughs) Maine is the whitest state in the union. They don't make any remarks or things that would be offensive but the gender obtuseness i'm taking away a point for ashley's the the only woman she's treated like a total airhead Mm -hmm. not only by the guys but also by the filmmakers you know film editors make choices and she's treated her brother um chase is a couple years younger than her but treats her like he's an annoyed older brother they're dismissive of her she's supposed to do the design stuff 
They give her all sorts of shit that's supposed to be in good fun. That's not every time somebody has a broom, they say, Ashley, your ride is here. Yeah. They treat the stuff she has to do as though it's not as important as the stuff they have to do. And a lot of it is the way men treat women. But I think a lot of it too is the decisions that the filmmakers are making when they edit the show because there has to be a storyline. There have to be characters, and I I feel for her. They um, make fun of her a lot, and a lot of it's mean-spirited. It just bothers me, so I'm taking away a point. Okay. Lack of good visuals, I'm taking away nothing. It is beautifully filmed. Yes, it is. Maine yes. If, is a beautiful state, and I'll talk a little more about this later, but if any of you are listening who haven't been here or have only been to some place with a lighthouse and lobster dinner and want to really see what Maine is like, yeah. one of the reasons I enjoy watching this is just the beautiful photography in the way it even makes our hometown. The morals are from Augusta. In fact, we um, lived across the street from their uncle, Lee, yes, Merle, we did. who's on. I don't know them. Like, I'm not talking about the show because we know them and we're promoting it they did go to our high school chase and ashley and dixie after our time after our time they showed downtown augusta a few times they show places it's funny because a lot of i'd say at least half of the cabins that they do are within a 10 15 minute half hour from where i live because they're located right down in the next town over from here and it's so beautifully filmed yeah um, if it shows wonder- a lot of it the inland right parts of a maine. lot of the parts of maine that you wouldn't that you don't normally see mm-hmm. if you're what we call a coastal tourist the people who come up for the beautiful well, rocky coast just Although, any mention of maine uh, or they show the, the lighthouse headlight. right yeah. portland headlight and stuff if you're wondering what all the to do is about Maine. The visuals on this show, that makes it worthwhile. There are other things, but missing pieces, I'm taking away a point. Um, Like a lot of these DIY and home improvement shows, there are things that are left out and not explained. There are crises that are apparently solved and you don't know why. Sometimes (laughs) it's not clear. One thing that bugs me that probably won't bug anybody else is sometimes it's not clear where they are. I know nobody cares about me, but I want to know, like I'm my main Atlas and Gazetteer and I like to look up mm-hmm. and nail down where they are and stuff. But mostly it's things they don't explain. Like there's one where they use this big old canoe. Whenever they find a canoe in the woods, which a lot of these places have, they use it for something. And, and one, it was Bev Daggett's camp. They made a um, big bookcase. The problem is there's no way to get to the top shelves. <laughs> they know. put stuff on the shelves and I'm watching it and like how that's not a use, usable bookcase. How are you mm. going to get to those top shelves? And nobody said, hey, Chase, you idiot, like they would have said if it was Ashley's. How are you going to get the books from up there? Mm. But, so anyway, so inaccuracies, anachronisms, no anachronisms, but inaccuracies, I'm taking away half a point because yeah. there are specific points they get wrong. They had one in my town. I live in a town with a lot of lakes. Great Pond, which is in Maine, Pond is another word for lake, was where the book and then movie on Golden Pond was based. The movie was filmed in New Hampshire, but it's great. Golden Pond is Great Pond. Mm-hmm. They were doing a camp on Long Pond and said, this is Golden Pond. And they said it a couple of times. It's great to be here on Golden Pond, just like in the movie. And first of all, the, the guys live five miles away from there. Not, <laughs> that, that means anything. So it's like they probably see it all the time. But they also had the wrong location for Maine Yankee, the nuclear power. Yes, plant. they said it wasn't bad. Um, yeah. And there's a couple other things like that. And the things, if they're just 
talking to each other and they get something wrong that's fine because we do it all the time but these are the more scripted things where they're talking to the camera and i don't know if they're doing it or if somebody who's writing the show it's made by the main film bureau or whatever or that's part of the backing for it somebody is getting facts wrong that they shouldn't be yeah like when they said an esker was yeah right they they got an esker and an isthmus mixed up it was an esker but he's like an esker is lands with water on either side and it's like no that's an isthmus an esker is a ridge of land yeah though this was an esker and an isthmus yes i know we sound like a couple of dorks but if you're gonna say shit like that get it right yeah storytelling i would like to not take away points <laughs> because there are some very good things that i'll get to in a minute but i'm taking away a half a point for the hijinks which are totally not necessary the contrived shit like there was one where they had a bet on something and it's like okay whoever loses oh because they were doing two cabins at once up in carabasa philly to the, the a-frame yes whichever team loses has to dress up like in tutus or whatever and shit Mm. we don't need that for the show to be interesting the stuff with ashley is part of the story that i don't like the first two seasons lance was on yes chase's best friend and lance was kind of a goofball but i think they overplayed his goofballness and i felt and this is just me totally speculating i felt the second season he seemed more subdued and i was Mm -hmm. almost wondering if he didn't like being portrayed as a clown yeah and again they have to have a narrative and make a story and so they have to cast characters mm-hmm. and so lance they they made him look foolish a lot when he wasn't and i will say he was one of jedi and dixie are nice to ashley most of the time but lance is the only one who's consistently nice yes. to ashley and about ashley there were yes. several where he would say to the camera i like working with ashley i always enjoy working with ashley they overplay a lot of that stuff and yeah. they don't have to because the good thing of the storytelling is it not only shows how beautiful maine is and shows this great tradition of maine hunting and vacation camps which were by the way uh, maine preservation's endangered list maine's yeah. camp, sporting camps but every show, almost every show features craftspeople yeah. and artists and the people they work with and subcontract with, like Francis Folsom, who is a landscaping company here where I live. And when I was at my old job, which was a business publication, there was some stat that I can't remember now, but Maine has the biggest percentage of businesses with under something like 20 employees or something like every business is a small business and when you watch this show and you see these crafts people they're not like searching far and wide for them there are crafters people who have businesses where they're iron mongers and and people who make things out of wood there was one i watched last night where a neighbor of the place came over and they had the stumps and he turned stumps into bowls and wanted to take some of the stumps to make bowls out of them for the family they were doing. The I mean, these people are everywhere. Yeah. And I think this show really shows the best of Maine. And that's why they don't need the hijinks and stuff. Yeah, I know. And then some of the contrived stuff, like they were doing one up in Rangeley where years ago it had been a garage and it had been converted into a camp. And so for Ashley to get inspiration, she went to Wiscast at Speedway, which is like three hours away to get garage inspiration. And I'm like, that is so friggin' contrived. And all I can think is Wiscast at Speedway was like, how can we get on your show? Yeah. And this is how they did it. But they do show 
as I said, not only the geography and the nature, like every time they see an eagle, they show it. Almost every show there's an eagle, yeah. bald eagle flying around. And the craftspeople, but also the people on it are all like genuine main yeah, they people. Are. Like everybody is just so main. Well, the, the business people, oh, some of the owners are. Some of the owners aren't. Like I was saying to you, I texted to you, you can always tell when they're from Massachusetts. No offense to our Massachusetts listeners. But you can always tell when people are from away and yeah. stuff. The regulars on the show, as well as the crafts people and the people yeah, that they... Yeah, they're, they're, they're genuine. They're, it's just a genuine main show. And it's yeah. not played up. And it's not yeah. played up. It's not like, oh, listen to the funny accents. Yeah. Or just this is how people are. These are our neighbors and the people who live among us and the people we know. And this is what people are like here more than any show because the only other show that featured Maine that I ever watched was Northwood's Law which uh, yeah, had its issues that. but this is the one show and that's why we can segue right into freshness I would say yes it's very fresh because it's a show that just genuinely shows the state of Maine without all the cliches of the lobster I mean there are lobsters once in a while and there are lighthouses including the one on Cabasi Lake but it's fresh because it shows a Maine that you don't see often but is what Maine is really like repetitive taking away another point half a point because the stuff before the commercial and then after the commercial where they repeat and also every friggin camp has rot I know the whole oh this has rot oh I mean they're less histrionic about it now i'm on like season four now <laughs> they were earlier but they do repeat a lot of the issues or problems and stuff which they don't have to because another thing oh i was gonna say in storytelling another thing that's good that i find is better than a lot of these home improvement shows is they're all really skilled carpenters and stuff and they really explain to you what you're doing i'm learning a lot about how houses are built and carpentry and things that aren't like esoteric and unlike a lot of these shows where you know they're they're doing over a house in a week or two weeks a lot of these are taking two months and nine weeks they have small budgets i think the biggest budget on anyone i've seen so far is forty thousand dollars yeah and so the budgets are usually between twenty five thousand and forties high end usually it's thirty thirty five yeah and granted that doesn't pay for labor it pays for materials these aren't big fancy things they they're very into reusing recycling they use a lot of stuff they find on site unlike a lot of these shows it really is informative about how this work is done i learned why half my windows don't work right (laughs) because the foundation on my house was put on 70 years after the house was built and so it straightened the house out and it had been crooked which the windows don't work and i didn't realize till they had an issue on one of theirs where they straightened out one of the camps and then the windows didn't open some of them and stuff so i think that's a six no, because you took off, five, you've taken off at least five. I took five. a one, one, and then 0. 0.5, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.5. Oh, 0. 0. 0.5. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's a six. It's a little low for my enjoyment of the show. I just like it because I veg out for a I couple like hours watch before it. I go yeah. to bed. I really do enjoy it. And the criticisms I have of it, I think my biggest one is how Ashley is treated. I don't uh, like that. I think that also... Uh, some of the criticisms 
it's the show's fault, not right, not, not theirs. Well, there was another main one. There were only three episodes about that. Do it was I have it. Oh, it was right, on do Amazon. Animal, right, Mount it Vernon. Was, it was but called. it was about do animal, and it um, was extremely contrived and right. annoying. And then the heat. There was some controversy about the Bob of animals and stuff. So yeah, he's a Vietnam them. Yeah, Mother Jones did a big story. That was when I first started at the KJ. Yeah, but this it's genuine Maine. Yeah, they is. don't make everybody look like some caricature, even no. when they're overplaying like Lance and making fun of Ashley. These are genuine people who, in fact, we know like there there's been at least half a dozen people over the four seasons I've watched yeah. who I know, too, you know, yeah. and, and stuff. So it's kind of funny to see people, you know, on TV. And it's fun to see places that you're familiar yes. with. And to realize how beautiful the state is. Yes. And I think that there are people around the country that like right. to watch it. And we do have in Maine a lot of extremely wealthy people, mm-hmm. extremely wealthy visitors, multi-million dollar homes and beautiful places. This show doesn't focus on that. No, that's the nice on, thing about it. On yeah. the little camps. And, and the- some of the people are obviously wealthy who own the camps, but a lot of it is these really junky little rusty camps that are just every single place in Maine and they're fixing them and preserving them. They don't make them fancy schmancy. Fancy. No, Uh, no. it's a camp. I highly recommend it. If you like DIY shows, home improvement shows, but also if you're just curious about what Maine is really like is a unique. If you want to hear Maine, the accents they have are mid Maine, central right. Maine. Some um, people it's not than that others. Pepperidge Farm guy. Right. You know, it's a that's what people so, sound like where we grew up. Animal. And they talk to people in different parts of the state, so they right. do so have you get a accents. different type of Maine accent yeah. and stuff. I highly recommend it. The six is just for those issues I had, but they're certainly not fatal yes. issues. And oh. if you can find it again, that's Maine Cabin Masters. Yeah. But anyway, so that's our episode. I guess I'm. Thank next... you. How long is your thing, by the way? It's not. It's probably about two thirds as long as a normal. Okay. Longer than I wanted. But... Mm. Okay. What are you doing? I was just playing with this. Okay. Thing. Well, don't. That's what he said. Yeah. Anyway, but... what? Sometimes your hand is because I know that I'm not. <laughs>